Chapter twenty six, part four of volume three of a popular history of France from the earliest times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume three of a popular history of France from the earliest times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter twenty six. The Wars of Italy. Charles the Eighth, fourteen eighty three to fourteen ninety eight. Part four. Ferdinand the Second, the new king of Naples, who had no lack of energy or courage, was looking everywhere, at home and abroad, for forces and allies to oppose the imminent invasion. To the Duke of Milan he wrote, Remember that we two are of the same blood. It is much to be desired that a league should at once be formed between the Pope, the kings of the Romans and Spain, you and Venice. If these powers are united, Italy would have naught to fear from any. Give me your support. I have the greatest need of it. If you back me, I shall owe you the preservation of my throne, and I will honor you as my father. He ordered the Neapolitan envoy at Constantinople to remind Sultan Bajaze of the reinforcements he had promised his father, King Alfonso. Time passes. The King of France is advancing in person on Naples. Be instant in solicitation. Be importunate if necessary so that the Turkish army crossed the sea without delay. Be present yourself at the embarkation of the troops. Be active. Run. Fly. He himself ran through all his kingdom, striving to resuscitate some little spark of affection and hope. He had no success anywhere. The memory of the king his father was hateful. He was himself young and without influence. His ardor caused fear instead of sympathy. Charles kept advancing along the kingdom through the midst of people that remained impassive when they did not give him a warm reception. The garrison of Monte San Giovanni, the strongest place on the frontier, determined to resist. The place was carried by assault in a few hours, and the assailants, says a French chronicler, without pity or compassion, made short work of all those plunderers and malefactors whose bodies they hurled down from the walls. The carnage lasted eight whole hours. A few days afterwards Charles, with his guard, arrived in front of San Germano. The clergy awaited him at the gate with cross and banner. Men of note carried a dais under which he took his place. Behind him followed men, women, and children, chanting this versicle from the Psalms, Benedictus qui venit in nomine Domini, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The town of Capua was supposed to be very much attached to the house of Aragon. John James Trivulzio, a valiant Milanese captain, who had found asylum and fortune in Naples, had the command there, and thither King Ferdinand hurried. "'I am going to Naples for troops,' said he to the inhabitants. "'Wait for me confidently, and if by to-morrow evening you do not see me return, make your own terms with King Charles. You have my full authority.' On arriving at Naples, he said to the Neapolitans, "'Hold out for a fortnight.' I will not expose the capital of my kingdom to be stormed by barbarians. If within a fortnight hence I have not prevented the enemy from crossing the Volturno, you may ask him for terms of capitulation. And he went back to Capua. When he was within sight of the ramparts he heard that on the previous evening, before it was night, the French had been admitted into the town. Trivulzio had been to visit King Charles at Tiano, and had offered, in the name of his troops and of the Capuans, to surrender Capua. He had even added, says Giarcadini, that he did not despair of bringing King Ferdinand himself to an arrangement, if a suitable provision were guaranteed to him. 
"'I willingly accept the offer you make me in the name of your troops and of the Capuans,' answered Charles. "'As for the Aragonese prince, he shall be well received if he come to me. But let him understand that not an inch of ground shall be left to him in this kingdom. In France he shall have honours and beautiful domains.' On the 18th of February Charles entered Capua amidst the cheers of the people, and on the same day Trivulzio went over to his service with a hundred lances. On returning to Naples, Ferdinand found the gates closed, and could not get into Castelnuovo, save by a postern. At that very moment the mob was pillaging his stables. He went down from the fortress, addressed the crowd collected beneath the ramparts in a few sad and bitter words, into which he tried to infuse some leaven of hope, took certain measures to enable the two forts of Naples, Castelnuovo and Castel d'Uvo, to defend themselves for a few days longer, and on the 23rd of February went for refuge to the island of Ischia, repeating out loud, as long as he had Naples in his sight, this versicle from the Psalms. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. At Ischia itself he had a fresh trial to make, says Giacardini, of his courage and of the ungrateful faithlessness displayed towards those whom fortune deserts. The governor of the island refused to admit him accompanied by more than one man. The prince, so soon as he got in, flung himself upon him, poniard in hand, with such fury and such an outburst of kingly authority that all the garrison, astounded, submitted to him, and gave up to him the fort and its rock. On the very eve of the day on which King Ferdinand II was thus seeking his last refuge in the island of Ischia, Charles VIII was entering Naples in triumph at the head of his troops, on horseback, beneath a pall of cloth of gold borne by four great Neapolitan lords, and received, says Giacardini, with cheers and a joy of which it would be vain to attempt a description, the incredible exultation of a crowd of both sexes, of every age, of every condition, of every quality, of every party, as if he had been the father and first founder of the city. And the great French historian bears similar witness to that of the great Italian historian. Never, says Coleman, did people show so much affection to king or nation as they showed to the king, and thought all of them to be free of tyranny. At the news hereof the disquietude and vexation of the principal Italian powers were displayed at Venice, as well as at Milan and at Rome. The Venetian Senate, as prudent as it was vigilant, had hitherto maintained a demeanour of expectancy, and almost of good will towards France. They hoped that Charles the Eighth would be stopped or would stop himself in his mad enterprise, without their being obliged to interfere. The doge, Augustin Barbarigo, lived on very good terms with Comyn, who was as desirous as he was that the king should recover his senses. Coleman was destined to learn how difficult and sorry a thing it is to have to promote a policy of which you disapprove. When he perceived that a league was near to being formed in Italy against the King of France, he at once informed his master of it, and attempted to dissuade the Venetians from it. They denied that they had any such design, and showed a disposition to form, in concert with the kings of France, Spain, and the Romans, and with the whole of Italy, a league against the Turks, provided that Charles the Eighth would consent to leave the King of Naples in possession of his kingdom, at the same time keeping for himself three places therein, and accepting a sum in ready money which Venice would advance. Would to God, says Coleman, that the King had been pleased to listen then. Of all I did give him notice, and I got bare answer. 
when the Venetians heard that the king was in Naples, and that the strong fort, which they had great hopes would hold out, was surrendering, they sent for me one morning, and I found them in great number, about fifty or sixty, in the apartment of the prince, the doge, who was ill. Some were sitting upon a staircase leading to the benches, and had their heads resting upon their hands. Others otherwise, all showing that they had great sadness at heart. And I trow that, when news came to Rome of the battle lost at Cannae against Hannibal, the senators who had remained there were not more dumbfounded and dismayed than these were, for not a single one made sign of seeing me, or spoke to me one word, save the duke, the doge, who asked me if the king would keep to that of which he had constantly sent them word, and which I had said to them. I assured them stoutly that he would, and I opened up ways for it to remain at sound peace, hoping to remove their suspicions, and then I did get me gone. The league was concluded on the 31st of March, 1495, between Pope Alexander the Sixth, Emperor Maximilian I, as King of the Romans, the King of Spain, the Venetians, and the Duke of Milan. To three ends, says Coman, for to defend Christendom against the Turks, for the defense of Italy, and for the preservation of their estates. There was nothing in it against the king, they told me, but it was to secure themselves from him. They did not like his so deluding the world with words by saying that all he wanted was the kingdom, and then to march against the Turk, and all the while he was showing quite the contrary. I remained in the city about a month after that, being as well treated as before, and then I went my way, having been summoned by the king, and being conducted in perfect security, at their expense, to Ferrara, whence I went to Florence to await the king. When Ferdinand II took refuge in the island of Ischia, and Castel Nuovo and Castel del Uvo had surrendered at Naples, Charles the Eighth, considering himself in possession of the kingdom, announced his intention, and, there is reason to believe, actually harbored the design of returning to France, without asserting any further his pretensions as a conqueror. On the 20th of March, before the Italian League had been definitively concluded, Bricanet, Cardinal of St. Malo, who had attended the king throughout his expedition, wrote to the Queen, Anne of Brittany, His Majesty is using diligence as best he can to return over yonder, and has expressly charged me for my part to hasten his affairs. I hope he will be able to start hence about the 8th of April. He will leave over here as lieutenant, my lord de Montpensier, with a thousand or twelve hundred lances, partly French and partly of this country, fifteen hundred Swiss, and a thousand French crossbowmen. Charles himself wrote, on the 28th of March, to his brother-in-law, the Duke of Bourbon, that he would mount his horse immediately after Quasimodo, the first Sunday after Easter, to return to France, without halting or staying in any place. But Charles, whilst so speaking and projecting, was forgetful of his giddy insolence, his frivolous tastes, and his passion for theatrical display and licentious pleasure. The climate, the country, the customs of Naples charmed him. "'You would never believe,' he wrote to the Duke of Bourbon, "'what beautiful gardens I have in this city. On my faith, they seem to lack only Adam and Eve to make of them an earthly paradise. So beautiful are they, and full of nice and curious things, as I hope to tell you soon. To add to that, I have found in this country the best of painters, and I will send you some of them to make the most beautiful ceilings possible. The ceilings at Buse, Lyon, and other places in France do not approach those of this place in beauty and richness. Wherefore I shall provide myself with them, and bring them with me for to have some done at Amboise. 
politics were forgotten in the presence of these royal fancies. Charles VIII remained nearly two months at Naples after the Italian League had been concluded, and whilst it was making its preparations against him was solely concerned about enjoying, in his beautiful but precarious kingdom, all sorts of mundane pleasances, as his counsellor, the Cardinal of St. Malo, says, and giving entertainments to his new subjects, as much disposed as himself to forget everything in amusement. On the 12th of May, 1495, all the population of Naples and of the neighbouring country was afoot early to see their new king make his entry in state as king of Naples, Sicily, and Jerusalem, with his Neapolitan court and his French army. Charles was on horseback beneath a rich dais borne by great Neapolitan lords. He had a close crown on his head, the sceptre in his right hand, and a golden globe in his left. In front of this brilliant train he took his way through the principal streets of the city, halting at the five knots of the noblesse, where the gentlemen and their wives who had assembled there detained him a long while, requesting him to be pleased to confer with his own hand the order of knighthood on their sons, which he willingly did. At last he reached the cathedral church of St. Generius, which had recently been rebuilt by Alfonso I of Aragon, after the earthquake of 1456. The archbishop, at the head of his clergy, came out to meet him, and conducted him to the front of the high altar, where the head of St. Generius was exhibited. When all these solemnities had been accomplished to the great satisfaction of the populace, bonfires were lighted up for three days. The city was illuminated, and only a week afterwards, on the 20th of May, 1495, Charles VIII started from Naples to return to France, with an army, at the most, from twelve to fifteen thousand strong, leaving for guardian of his new kingdom his cousin, Gilbert of Bourbon, Count de Montpensier, a brave but indolent knight, who never rose, it was said, until noon, with eight or ten thousand men, scattered for the most part throughout the provinces. During the months of April and May, thus wasted by Charles the Eighth, the Italian League, and especially the Venetians and the Duke of Milan, Ludovic the Moor, had vigorously pushed forward their preparations for war, and had already collected an army more numerous than that which the King of France, in order to return home, would have to traverse the whole of Italy. He took more than six weeks to traverse it, passing three days at Rome, four at Siena, the same number at Pisa, and three at Lucca, though he had declared that he would not halt anywhere. He evaded entering Florence, where he had made promises which he could neither retract nor fulfill. The Dominican Savonarola, who had always preached greatly in the king's favor, says Comyn, and by his words had kept the Florentines from turning against us, came to see him on his way at Pagibonsi. I asked him, said Comyn, whether the king would be able to cross without danger to his person, seeing the great muster that was being made by the Venetians. He answered me that the king would have trouble on the road, but that the honor would remain his, though he had but a hundred men at his back. But seeing that he had not done well for the reformation of the church as he ought, and had suffered his men to plunder and rob the people, God had given a sentence against him, and, in short, he would have a touch of the scourge. Several contemporary historians affirm that if the Italian army, formed by the Venetians and the Duke of Milan, had opposed the march of the French army, they might have put it in great peril, but nothing of the kind was attempted. It was at the passage of the Apennines, so as to cross them and to descend into the Duchy of Parma, that Charles the Eighth had for the first time to overcome resistance, not from men but from nature. He had in his train a numerous and powerful artillery, 
from which he promised himself a great deal when the day of battle came, and he had to get it up and down by steep paths. Here never, says the chronicle of La Tremoille, had car or carriage gone. The king, knowing that the lord of La Tremoille, such was his boldness and his strong will, thought nothing impossible, gave to him this duty, which he willingly undertook, and to the end that the footmen, Swiss, German, and others, might labor thereat without fearing the heat, he addressed them as follows. The proper nature of us Gauls is strength, boldness, and ferocity. We triumphed at our coming. Better would it be for us to die, than to lose by cowardice the delight of such praise. We are all in the flower of our age and the vigor of our years. Let each lend a hand to the work of dragging the gun-carriages and carrying the cannon-balls. Ten crowns to the first man that reaches the top of the mountain before me. Throwing off his armor, La Tramoy, in hose and shirt, himself lent a hand to the work. By dint of pulling and pushing, the artillery was got to the brow of the mountain. It was then harder still to get it down the other side, along a very narrow and rugged incline, and five whole days were spent on this rough work, which luckily the generals of the enemy did not attempt to molest. La Tramoy, black as a moor, says the chronicle, by reason of the murderous heat he had endured, made his report to the king, who said, By the light of this day, cousin, you have done more than ever could Hannibal of Carthage or Caesar have done, to the peril of your person, whereof you have not been seen sparing to serve me, me and mine. I vow to God that if I may only see you back in France, the recompense I hope to make you shall be so great, that others shall conceive fresh desire to serve me. End of chapter 26, part 4